Father, teach us from your word tonight. Teach us concerning the truth of who you are and who Christ is, his purpose in his coming, the work he did on the cross, the meaning of these things. But equally important, Father, teach us who we are. Men and women who live in a sinful way, who have been saved by grace, who have received what you have given, not by our own merit or work, Father, but by your mercy. Teach us who we are now in Christ, men and women called to be ambassadors, who have been seated in the heavenly places already, who have an inheritance ready to be revealed in the day. Teach us these things, Father, so we may live now with a humble appreciation for who we have been and with courage and boldness knowing who we are in Christ. I pray these things knowing your word, Father, can make all these things happen in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a short little saying that helps us remember the purpose of each part of the Bible. This is a memory aid, I guess you could say, and its point is in helping us recognize the purpose in why we have each major section of the Bible. And it goes like this. The Old Testament is Christ predicted. The Gospels are Christ revealed. The book of Acts is Christ preached. The letters are Christ explained. And Revelation is Christ anticipated. The epistles are given to us so that we might fully appreciate the meaning and the significance of Christ's work of redemption. That is Christ explained, as my little saying went. And so naturally, that means whenever you turn to the letters of the New Testament, you're going to find yourself knee deep in doctrine. In fact, most, if not virtually all the doctrines of our faith come out of the letters of the New Testament. So knowing that, it means we ought to give some priority to understanding and appreciating doctrine, given its prominence in the New Testament. And understanding doctrine requires sober thinking, requires effort on our part, and yet it pays a great dividend as well, because by the study of doctrine, we begin to learn why the Lord has done what he has done for us. And, of course, therefore, what we should do in response. You learn the truth about things like sin, about holiness, about man, and about God. So doctrine is not an option, in my opinion. I think we sometimes slip into a thought that says, well, we have seminaries and we send certain people so that they can come back with a knowledge of fancy things and doctrine so that then we have at least somebody in the church who knows these things. And it's a completely backwards mentality, right? I've always said, if seminaries were such a great place to turn people into good men and women, why aren't we all going to seminary? Well, the only reason we don't is, practically speaking, we can't all fit. So the goal is that you send people away who might learn something so they can come back and make this place a seminary. That's the whole idea. Doctrine is not an option. Doctrine is core to our walk as Christians. And, of course, many of us hear the word doctrine and you're already half asleep. Because the nature of the material is it's challenging. It's like taking a class in college. Ultimately, we learn doctrine for the very same reasons that we were taught something like chemistry or biology in school. We learned those subjects, if you remember, so that you could make sense of the way things are in the world around you. But you didn't need to have an understanding of chemistry or biology to appreciate and enjoy nature. You could do that from the moment you were born. But if you learned those subjects, you could better appreciate what you saw at a deeper level with greater understanding. Furthermore, if you have that knowledge, then you can live and work in greater harmony 
with nature than would have been possible without it. For example, you learn not to mix certain chemicals together in the toilet bowl when you're cleaning. Otherwise, you might die from the fumes, right? Practical lessons like that are helpful. You learn how the body works, and so you learn better ways to care for it or to make it healthy and live longer or live more healthy lives. The point here is that you don't have to understand doctrine to know God and to enjoy him. I'm saved by faith, you're saved by faith, and we came to that moment without the first inkling of doctrine. But it takes the study of doctrine in Scripture to gain the benefits of a walk with Christ, to enjoy God more fully and have a better understanding of who he is, and through those understandings, you're in a better position to please him, to do what he wants, to make better choices and decisions, to stay away from dangerous things like false doctrine. It's the same idea. So study of doctrine is absolutely essential to providing spiritual maturity and development and for successful walk as a Christian. Chapter 3 through 5 of Galatians is 100% full-strength, undiluted doctrine. Paul is teaching, you might even say reteaching, the churches in Galatia on core doctrines of the faith in this letter. And the doctrines he's going to touch upon in these next three chapters are soteriology, Israelology, and ecclesiology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation, the biblical teaching on how one is saved. Israelology is the doctrine of Israel, the role of Israel in God's plan, and by extension, the covenants he gave to Israel. And then thirdly, ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church, the role of the Gentile church in God's economy. Paul addresses these three doctrines in this part of the letter, these three chapters, in a chiastic structure, in a chiastic structure. And what do I mean by that? Well, a chiasm is a literary structure in which a series of points are developed in a very unique pattern. The order of thought will proceed from point to point, and then at a place in the argument, it reverses itself and makes those arguments in reverse order. It makes it look like a sideways V, or in Greek, the letter chi. So it's chiastic. So if an argument had three points, a chiasm would approach it in this way. Point one, point two, point three, Point three, point two, point one. You would reverse out from the order that you came in with. Well, why is this important? Well, in Scripture, there are chiasms everywhere. When you know what to look for, you see them throughout the Bible. Chiasms are constantly in use. It's a form of literary writing common in the East and in ancient writing. And chiasms direct you to the point. The point of a chiasm is the point, the place of reversal. It makes the point that that's the most important issue. And so Paul's teaching in a somewhat loosely structured, chiastic manner here. So in chapters 3 through 5, Paul is going to address the doctrines of soteriology, Israelology, and ecclesiology in a loose, chiastic order. So he begins with soteriology. He'll proceed then to a proper view of Israel and the law. That's Israelology. Then he'll go from there to the meaning of the church, which is ecclesiology. And then he'll back out once again, looking at all three in reverse order. They don't break with chapters. You're not going to see this in the chapter headings or anything of that sort. They're not labeled. You have to look for the topical changes as you go through the text. I'll guide you in that. Uh, If you have more interest in chiasms, you can go Google it. And in Scripture, there are some very, very well-known ones. The entire flood of Noah is a chiasm. The whole book of Ruth is a chiasm. And you see them on smaller scales throughout the Bible. Chapter 3. Let's go to verses 1 through 5. So if my introduction stuck, then you should tell me right up front, which of those topics are we going to start with? Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. So Paul is setting correctly here in their minds the doctrine of salvation. Why are we on a topic of salvation as we start in chapter 3? Well, because the whole point of the letter was to set Galatia right on doctrine, and particularly on the doctrine of salvation and of 
Israel and of the church. And in the first two chapters, he has set up this examination of doctrine by defending his authority to teach as an apostle. Having done that, now he's ready to get to the heart of the matter, which are these topics. Beginning in verses 1 through 5, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The nice, powerful opening to the heart of the letter, isn't it? Paul opens with five rhetorical questions, and those five rhetorical questions set up the rest of his teaching. Each question has an obvious answer, which is why we say the rhetorical. Paul doesn't expect them to dialogue about this. They should immediately understand the answer just by the question itself. And the answers that are going to be driven from these questions are going to lead them to natural conclusions. And those natural conclusions will counter all on their own the false teaching that has come into this city. And there is no way to answer these questions honestly without contradicting the tenets of teaching that the false teachers had brought in, that the Judaizers we're giving. You can't get the right answers here and not be contradicting them at the same time. So let's look at each one. The first question, Paul asks, who bewitched you, O foolish Galatians? The word foolish can also be translated stupid. And as such, in Scripture, it's the equivalent to an insult. It's a hard word. In this case, with Paul using it, you might ask, well, is he insulting them? Is this a sin on Paul's part? Well, Paul is simply speaking honestly with regard to their thinking on this matter. They are acting foolish as a person who has never learned even basic things. And that's his basis for calling them foolish. Paul asks, are you acting this way because someone bewitched you? The word bewitched in Greek is the only time this word appears in the whole New Testament. And best translated would mean, has someone placed a spell on you? Has someone placed a hex on you, as somebody might say? So in effect, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, are you acting so stupid because someone cast a spell on you? And of course, he doesn't actually think that's what's happened. His point is, it's the only thing he could imagine to explain their behavior. In light of the fact of what he says at the end of verse 1, in light of the fact that they know of Christ crucified, they were taught properly, in other words, when Paul was last here in town. He says at the end there, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified before their eyes. And I don't really like this English translation of the Greek. I think, I think it misses the intent of the original text because the Greek words literally say, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was described from before all time as crucified. And what you're really hearing is Paul reminding the church that their own eyes saw the truth of Jesus written in the scriptures which described him as the Messiah who was promised from before. So, in effect, Paul is saying, your own eyes saw in the Bible that Jesus was crucified for you. And that is the doctrine that Paul is concerned about here. They saw for themselves the basis of their salvation when he taught them that Jesus crucified is the way. And Paul asks this question to remind them of that. Second question he asks is, how did you receive the Spirit? Was the arrival of the Spirit in your hearts a matter of law or of faith? Clearly, the answer is obvious again, right? 
They had heard the gospel message preached by Paul, and that message was united in their hearts with faith. And as a result of that faith, they received the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit did not come to that church as a result of them keeping the law of Moses. In fact, this is a Greek church or Greek area, the diaspora. So the Galatians would not have been living under the law of Moses before Paul showed up. More than likely, they had no knowledge of it. They probably hadn't even heard of it for the most part. So obviously, the Spirit's arrival into their hearts did not come as a result of them following a law they knew nothing about. So Paul has asked them the obvious question. Now, why is he focused on the arrival of the Spirit, per se? Why is that such a critical issue? Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what we're talking about here, the moment the Spirit comes into the heart of a believer at the moment of their salvation, that moment, Paul says, is the definition of who is a Christian. By definition, the one who has the Spirit of God. Paul says this in Romans 8:14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The definition of who is God's is who he puts his spirit in. And so Paul asked the Galatians, how did you receive the spirit? Or in other words, how did you receive eternal life? How did you receive what God has offered in salvation? By faith or by works? And the answer, of course, is by faith. Thirdly, Paul asks another question. And this third question is predicated on the answer to the second one, by the way. Paul asks, is this church so foolish or stupid that they now believe that they can be perfected by a law, having been saved earlier by grace, by faith. So obviously he's assuming that they've already gotten the right answer to the earlier questions, right? If you started with grace, why do you think you have to perfect that in works? Why are they willing to switch horses in midstream? That's what Paul's asking him now. Because if faith is sufficient in and of itself to bring us to Christ then why would they be willing, this church be willing to foolishly believe that they needed to now return to a life of living under law in order to perfect what they've already been given? And the word for perfect in Greek is equally translated complete. So God began the work of salvation in them by faith. And Paul asks, if the origin is of faith, why do you think you need to bring it to completion by works? Our sanctification, that is the process of making us holy, begins by the Spirit in us and, according to Scripture, will be finished by the Spirit in us. God brings into completion the thing that he promised to do in the beginning. And Paul says it succinctly later in Philippians 1, 6. He says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, same word in the Greek, complete it, until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul says... What began the work on the basis of the Spirit will be what completes the work. Now his fourth question, and in this he directs their attention to what they've experienced as believers. He says the churches in Galatia had seen immediate, intense persecution as a result of their conversion to Christianity. And in fact, we know that from Acts 14. In Acts 14, you have the record of Barnabas and Paul in Galatia. And as they prepare to leave and go back to their home in Antioch, there's a summary of what's going on in the churches that he's leaving. And in Acts 14:21 and 22, we read, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
So Paul's encouraging as he moves through that region, he's encouraging the disciples, withstand the persecution you're now experiencing. This is not unexpected. It goes with the territory. You should be prepared for this as a part of your faith. So that's the thing they knew as a church in Galatia was persecution. And he says it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. So now he asks them, all that suffering you did because of your faith, was that in vain? Because remember, the Judaizers were teaching the church in Galatia that they were not actually believers yet. They had like a partial step toward faith or toward salvation. Until they were circumcised and then began to follow the law, they had not yet crossed the line into salvation. And so Paul says, oh, well, you're not saved yet, according to what you're saying now or what you've been taught. So he says, well, all that persecution, what was all that about then? It was in vain. It was for no benefit. For remember, it is a benefit to the Christian to be persecuted. But there's no natural benefit in it to the unbeliever. Finally, the last question. It's a summary, really, of all the issues Paul has raised so far. He says, when we see God's work in this church, the giving of the Spirit, the working of miracles, how do we explain it? Did God accomplish these works because the church was working under the law? Or did he respond to the faith of the church at the proclamation of the word? What was God responding to in you? So the answers to all these questions are obvious. Let's summarize all of the questions and answers. Who cast a spell on the Galatians to lead them away from the testimony of Jesus crucified? The Judaizers. How did the church receive the Spirit and receive salvation and become children of God? By faith in hearing the gospel or by works? By faith preached from Paul. If their sanctification began in faith by the Spirit, then how should they expect the rest of their walk with the Lord to proceed? By faith in the Spirit? Did they experience persecution for Christ in vain, as if they had not yet been saved? No, they had rightly suffered for what they believed. Has God chosen to demonstrate His desire to work in their life through their faith, or did He do it because of their works? He's manifested Himself through their faith. So those questions and their unavoidable answers have dealt devastating blows to the basic tenets of the Judaizers. And now Paul moves from that point into making arguments linked to those opening questions and to those three areas of doctrine we said at the outset. So first, he's going to set straight the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Next, he'll look at the doctrine of Israel, which includes the purpose of the law. And then thirdly, he's going to address the proper understanding of the church in God's economy in relationship to Israel. Let's go first to... Verses 6 and 7 as we open that first doctrinal conversation on soteriology. Verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So Paul opens his teaching on salvation with this term, even so, which is to say, just as or according to. That's a very common rabbinical transitional statement. It, It alerts you immediately that Paul is now launching into teaching mode. So from the beginning, God worked through faith to bring righteousness. So even before the law was given, before even circumcision was commanded, the Lord described Abraham as righteous. So it's important to understand that this statement of righteousness for Abraham's sake was made in the Bible before God gave Abraham circumcision and certainly before he gave the law. So Abraham believed a word of promise that God spoke to him concerning his descendants and a land and a people. 
And as a result of the faith that Abraham demonstrated in God's word, God then declared Abraham righteous on the basis of that faith. When God declares anything, it becomes true the moment it's spoken. It may require many years before the truth of what God has said will come to pass for men to see, but it is no less true even as we wait for it to come to pass. God is not constrained by time, which is why Jesus says that heavens and earth will pass away, but the word of God will never pass away because the word of God is as eternal as God himself. So if Abraham is declared by God to be righteous in this moment, which occurs in Genesis 15, then righteousness has been made true for him in that moment. And that also tells us righteousness cannot be a matter of law or of circumcision, for those things had not come yet. So righteousness precedes those things. We also know God is perfectly just. So if one man can be declared righteous without those things being true for him, if Abraham can be righteous without circumcision, and Abraham can be righteous without works of law, if it's true for even one person, then it demonstrates those things are unnecessary for any man when it comes to the issue of righteousness. For if they were necessary, they would have been necessary for Abraham. So Paul concludes in verse 6 that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Now, in this verse, Paul raises the next major area of doctrine he wants to address, which is the issue of Israelology. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. He received a promise from God and with that a covenant. And the promise and the covenant eventually bring the nation of Israel into existence. And from that nation comes the word of God, comes the Messiah, comes salvation in its plan. What the Judaizers had done, though, is they had taken Abraham's importance and the importance of Israel and they had distorted it. And they had claimed that only if you were of Abraham's children could you be included in the promises of God. And they meant literally in the family of Israel. Only Israelites, in other words, would be saved. So a Galatian could not be blessed or receive an eternal inheritance or enter into the kingdom unless they were part of the family that received these promises. That is, unless they became Jewish. That was the essence of their argument. Those who are of faith, that is, those who have received the promises of God in Christ Jesus, are counted, Paul says, as Abraham's sons. But in what sense are we sons or daughters of Abraham? Well, there are two mistakes we can make doctrinally in trying to interpret Paul's statement here. On the one hand, we could assume that what Paul was saying is that we must, in some literal sense, become a descendant of Abraham, that is, to become Jewish. If we make that assumption, we've repeated the error of the Judaizers. On the other hand, we might go to the other direction and claim that belief will erase all distinction between Israel and Gentiles. And that is the mistake of the modern replacement theology movement, which sees the church as replacing Israel entirely in God's plan. Paul's going to eventually come back to this discussion and settle this argument for us. But first, he uses this next section to give a proper perspective on the Jewish nation, on the law and on the promises spoken to Abraham. So look at verses 8 and 9. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Paul says that God always intended to bring salvation to the Gentiles in due time. He preached, Paul says, to Abraham 
that through him, through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. And the word nations in Hebrew here is the word goy, which is Gentiles. So you can take the word nations out, put the word Gentiles in. It's a synonym in Hebrew. So since God intended to save Gentiles who, by definition, do not have the law, he must have devised a means that did not depend on law. So before the Jewish nation had ever existed, before the Lord had given them the law or any such thing, the Lord is declaring that salvation will be made available to Gentiles and will be made so through Abraham's family. So how is a Gentile to be blessed with salvation through Abraham's descendants if, by definition, Gentiles are not Abraham's descendants? Paul says Gentiles are given that opportunity to join by faith. We join in the blessings by faith. By faith, we become Abraham's sons. Now, in Jewish thinking, the word sons can carry the sense of follower as much as it does descendant. So as the sons of God is a way of saying the followers of God, that's the sense of it here. The sons of Abraham are those who are the followers. We follow in the footsteps of Abraham. I can give you a simple example of Jesus' own words from the Gospels that confirm this kind of thinking. He was speaking to the Pharisees in John's Gospel, in John 8:39. When he said this, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, Abraham's sons, do the deeds of Abraham. A simple statement reflects the thinking we just said. You say you're a son of Abraham, then why don't you do what Abraham does? Because that's what the term means, to follow in his footsteps, to do as he did. Now, of course, the Pharisees call themselves sons of Abraham, but Jesus points out that they're not living at all like Abraham, and particularly in the most important issue, they're not men of faith as Abraham was. So the Gentiles become a son or daughter of the Lord in faith because by that faith we become a follower. We do what Abraham did, and we receive the blessings he received. Paul's going to return to this topic as well later, and the issue of the Jewish child versus the Gentile child in the family of God. We'll come back to that again in the second side of this chiasm. Meanwhile, he continues to develop the doctrine of Israel by turning now to the second half of it, which is the issue of the law. So Israel and its law together is Israelology. And now he's going to talk to the issue of law. Verses 10 through 12, Paul says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Doctrine has more in common, I think, with mathematics than it does with anything else, because it's a development of thought in a very structured way. And that's what Paul's doing here. That's the difficulty of doctrine. We have to work a little bit. The Judaizers have made following the law of Moses the centerpiece of their argument. So they went into these churches after Paul and said, I know what Paul told you, but he left out something. You need to now take on a life of Judaism to gain the fullness of what he offered. They taught that believers, whether Jew or Gentile, had to live according to the law, starting with circumcision, if they were to be saved. But here, Paul says, that all who rely on the law for their justification are under a curse. The law itself, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21-23, declared that if you did not abide by all the things written in the law, then you are cursed to hang on a tree, meaning to die. 
as a result of your disobedience to the law. James echoes this. We know that in the New Testament. When James writes about this, he says in chapter 2, verse 10, that for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. God's law functions as an indivisible unit. So keeping some of the law while failing to keep other aspects of it gains us absolutely nothing. God does not grade on the curve. It is an all or nothing proposition as God has designed it. So scripture defines righteousness as a point, not a scale. Goodness or righteousness is a point. It's not a scale. And you can actually see this in an exchange between Jesus and a rich young ruler. In Luke eighteen nineteen. As they begin the conversation, the ruler calls Jesus good teacher. And Jesus' first response is in verse 19, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So only God is good, according to Jesus. No one else is good. Men prefer to think that good is on a scale of some set of degrees. You know, there's really good and there's mostly good and then there's sort of good. and There's sometimes good and not really often very good. and Maybe once in a while good, never good, bad. Poodles are way down here. (laughs) We think in terms of a scale. The problem is we have entirely the wrong measuring method. Being good, according to Scripture, means being 100% sinless. So even one sin moves you off the point of good and puts you, according to God's standards, on another point. And that other point is 100% bad. There is no scale. You are 100% good or you are 100% bad from God's point of view. That's why the scriptures say that anyone wishing to live according to the law must keep all of it, that is, be perfect, or else be cursed by the penalties of that law. And the penalty, according to the very law itself, for failing to keep the law is death. Only those who keep everything written in the law from birth until death can escape the penalty of it. To make even one mistake, according to James, in your entire lifetime, makes you 100% bad for the purposes of your judgment day, for it is an all or none proposition. So that's Paul's opening statement in verse 10. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law, meaning for whomever chooses to make the law their means of righteousness, they are under a curse, for they cannot meet that test. On the other hand, Scripture has always declared that righteousness was obtainable only by faith for the very reason that law can't make it work. Abraham is our example. He is a man declared righteous by faith and the prophets made similar declarations. And the one Paul quotes from in chapter 3, verse 11 is from Habakkuk in chapter 2, 2, 4, when he writes, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. So faith in God's promises is and always has been the one and only way to righteousness, which is the requirement to enter into God's presence. This is the essence of the gospel. A lot of people call themselves Christian, but they don't understand this. They think they will end up in heaven because they went to church. They think they will end up in heaven because they were born into a Baptist family or Catholic family or some other family. They think they're going to go to church because they're generally good. They've graded themselves on the curve. They've misunderstood the standards for entrance into heaven. And they have not understood that the whole reason that the law is so difficult is to demonstrate to us that we can't live according to the law, for we are under a curse if we do. So in verse 12, Paul concludes that faith and law always are two mutually exclusive means of seeking righteousness. In other words, 
There are only two options for reaching heaven, and one is no option at all. You can either earn entrance on your own merits by living up to the standards of the law, which means you have to equal God's goodness, which Jesus himself said is impossible. Or the only other way is to rely entirely on faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says it is impossible to seek righteousness by law and by faith at the same time. That's what the Galatians are attempting to do. Combine things that Paul says are by design mutually exclusive. Either I trust in my own ability to meet some standard of performance and I demonstrate my righteousness through my actions, or I recognize that I can't meet God's standards, and so I have to trust that God's going to make a provision for me through someone else doing it for me. Either I do it or someone else does it. If I can do it, I don't need someone else. If I can't do it, then my own work did me no good anyway. It's no point in doing some of it myself and then let somebody else do the whole thing for me as well. See the logic problem there? And that's what they're saying when they say, I'll take faith and also a little works on top. To summarize, Paul repeats, this is in the last verse I read, that he who practices the law shall live by them. And another way to say that, to really get the sense here, is to say that those who place their trust for salvation in the works of the law must be prepared to accept the result. You've got to be prepared to live with what follows. If you're going to trust in the law, then you're going to get what you deserve. That's really what he's saying. And since every man has sin, according to John's first letter, breaking even one law leaves us short of righteousness required for heaven. And therefore, following the law leaves us empty-handed 100% of the time. There is no one who could possibly meet the terms of the law, save Christ. So even our choice of whether we want to follow the law for our justification or whether we are going to accept it through faith, even just that choice is itself proof of whether we are resting in God's promises. If someone claims they're Christian, but then goes the next step and says that they are also relying on their works, they have proven in that sense that they have yet to have true saving faith. Because the definition of true saving faith is to repent of dead works, according to Hebrews chapter 6. To know that that is not a way so that you may embrace the one that has been made available. To think that this can be combined shows evidence you don't understand it. And that you have continued to rely on yourself. The Bible teaches that we cannot receive God's promise in faith until we have repented first. Repentance unto salvation is a repentance from dead works. And an acceptance of Christ in faith. So because the law is no solution to the problem of sin, Paul turns back to Christ as our solution. So he's putting in proper perspective the salvation we obtain through faith. He's moving through this discussion in orderly form. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Now, here you have the entire gospel message and really the whole central point of the Bible in two verses. Christ redeemed sinful men from the curse. And the word redeemed means to pay a ransom, to free someone by means of a payment. Jesus purchased or he ransomed you and I, all believers, from the curse of the law again. And he did so, we're told, by hanging on a cross, which is a tree of sorts, and dying in our place. So he literally took the penalty of law upon himself when he hung on that cross and he died. And through 
giving of himself to make a payment for something he didn't deserve, but you and I do, he gains then the right to purchase us with that payment, to redeem us. So the penalty of the law is satisfied. We have the opportunity then to be saved by our faith in that payment rather than by our own works under that curse. So everyone who stands in God's presence in heaven must possess a righteousness equal to God's own goodness. We all have to stand with God on that point that Jesus says represents the goodness of God. We all have to get there. The law of God is the standard we must meet. But working to keep that law is fruitless. So if we can't fulfill it, our hope then lies in the one who can. Jesus. Paul says Jesus died to give us that way. He makes possible the blessing that was offered and promised to Abraham. He makes possible for that blessing to come to us as well. Those who rest in God's promises by faith receive that blessing. In contrast to those who rely on works, they receive not a blessing but a curse for having been under law. So it would seem clear as you go through just this early part of chapter 3, it's already pretty clear. Faith trumps works, especially given the futility of trying to work to a standard of perfection. So then you might ask yourself, well, why did the churches in Galatia ever agree with the Judaizers? We have to assume Paul taught all of this the first time also. I can't imagine that he went away from Galatia and then realized later, I forgot to explain the gospel. So this isn't the first time they've heard it. If we've heard it this time through his writing, and it's so evidently clear and logical and convincing, well, what could have come later that would have made these people think that, no, 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 you must do works as well? What argument did the Judaizers bring to convince the church to keep the law? Well, in short, it was historical sequence. It was an argument of historical sequence. The Judaizers had argued that since the giving of the law to Moses came later in God's plan, it must take precedence over things that came earlier. It took priority over that earlier revelation, so that what God gave Abraham was good enough for Abraham in his day, yes, but now later we were given better and bigger things, and these new things now have to take precedence over what was given to Abraham. Faith may have been good enough for him, but once the law had been given at Sinai, well now that supersedes anything he said earlier to Abraham. That analysis we know is wrong. It is completely misunderstanding the purpose of the law. And so if Paul is going to defend salvation by grace through faith alone, then he has to teach the proper perspective on the law so as to counter that distorted teaching coming from the Judaizers. So what he's going to do in this next section through the rest of three and into four, not all of which we'll do tonight, but he's going to teach more doctrine, surprise, And that doctrine now moves into ecclesiology and eventually back into Israelology. That is the doctrine of the church. So here is an essential issue, I think more essential today than we may realize, an essential issue of understanding the relationship between God's people in Israel and the church in our day and the law and its purpose for both groups. Paul begins that in verse 15. He says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Paul's beginning a new argument, so let's understand where he's going. He begins here by saying, there are human examples of covenants. There are covenants we know exist between men, just mere men, where God is not a party to the covenant. And in these relationships, we can see certain patterns, certain things that are true. 
A covenant is just a special form of contractual relationship, one we don't really see very often today, except in marriage. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant is a legally binding agreement, similar to contracts. It has terms, it has obligations like contracts, but covenants differ from contracts as we know them today in at least two important ways. And Paul is pointing out those two important differences here. First, Paul says that once a covenant is ratified, no one sets it aside. Paul's referring to a covenant's most enduring quality, and that is that it endures. Covenants are legally binding for life. There is no cancel button on a covenant like there could be in some contracts. So to break a covenant meant paying with your life. It was said that only a death could put a covenant to an end. Either the natural death of one of the parties, which would end the agreement, or if one breaks the covenant, then his life would be taken. So only through death do covenants end. That's why Jesus says that to divorce and remarry is always adultery. A marriage is a type of covenant before God, and therefore it is an agreement that only comes to an end when a death occurs. Secondly, Paul says that no new condition can be added to a covenant. So the first unique condition to a covenant is it doesn't end without death. The second thing that's interesting or that's important is you cannot add conditions to it. It's not a living document like the U.S. Constitution is. It's formed in a moment according to certain terms and thereafter it will remain unchanged. So every covenant must continue as it was formed until all the terms come to pass or until the death of the one who makes it. Now, those limitations are true, Paul says, even for regular, everyday human covenants. Even the normal, everyday two men who might go into covenant with each other couldn't break it and couldn't add terms to it. So why do we expect that a covenant set by God would be any less certain and unchangeable? Will God not honor his covenants at least as well as men honor theirs? Certainly, that's the conclusion he's expecting us to make. And that's the application he will make now in the next verse, verse 16. He says, now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. Now, Paul is mentioning here this promise, because promise in this context refers to something very specific, to the Abrahamic covenant. So Paul is saying, there is a covenant now I want to compare. In verse 15, I'm talking about human covenants. In verse 16 now, let us consider what is true then about a covenant that came from God, a promise. He says, those promises were given to Abraham personally, to the man Abraham, and to his seed. Now, Paul is referencing specifically a moment in chapter 22 of Genesis when God speaks to Abraham. And this is what is said in that chapter, 22, 16 through 18. And he said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of your enemies in your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's the fourth time we see God extending that covenant to Abraham. When he spoke those words to Abraham, he uses that singular form of the word seed in Hebrew, which is Zerah. So if God had simply meant this, if he had simply been saying to Abraham, you and your offspring are going to receive all these things, then God would have used the plural form of the word Zerah, or seeds, as we would say. 
But Paul says God purposely and very conspicuously did not use the plural. He chose, in this case, the singular. Why? Well, Paul tells us now because he had a person on his mind when he was using that word. He was thinking very specifically of Christ who was to come through Abraham's line. He said, the promises that I am giving are for you and for Christ. Now, earlier, three times before, God had given similar promises to Abraham. And in those earlier moments, he had used a different word. He had used the word for descendants. So God is also intending to extend these blessings into the line of Abraham, which became the nation of Israel. They will receive these promises as did Abraham and by the same means, that is by faith. But when he comes to this fourth moment, the moment you might remember that's associated with Isaac on the mountain, which we know is also a moment that pictures Christ. So the death of Christ being pictured by that moment gives rise for the opportunity for God to say, I am going to make this covenant with you and with my seed, who is Christ. This is Paul's point. In chapter 22 of Genesis, God changed the language to use the singular version, which now puts Jesus in the center of this covenant. It's been given to Abraham by means of a promise, but that promise has been spoken to him and to Christ. And therefore, until both Abraham and Christ receive the blessings they've been promised, the covenant cannot end and must be fulfilled. Psalms 110 says this about that. Psalms 110, verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to my Lord, David's famous psalm, God the Father, speaking to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So until Christ is given all that the Lord has promised, not just to Abraham, but now to Christ, the seed, the covenant must remain in force. So Paul has said covenants remain unchanged and in force until the promises are kept. And this promise was not made to just a man. It was made to a man in the form of Melchizedek's order who had no beginning and has no end. So this promise cannot end by the death of Abraham. It continues on even past his day and is still in effect today. So then Paul makes the application in verses 17, 18. He says, what I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. He says this, the law of Moses arrived 430 years after the Lord spoke these words to Abraham and gave him his covenant. That later arrival of the law was the argument that the Judaizers were making to claim that the law is a requirement for a believer. For in their thinking, logically, God wouldn't have given it to us if we didn't need it in addition to what he said earlier. Paul argues such a conclusion is impossible given the nature of covenants. Nothing that comes after an existing covenant can invalidate a covenant that is already in effect because nothing can end it and nothing can be added to it. And men already knew that. This is not something Paul had to convince them of. This was the basic rule of law in their day. And so if nothing can nullify the promises of God given to Abraham, then if Abraham and Christ are going to receive the things God has promised 
And if those promises are no less sure because of something that came later, then the law has nothing to say regarding the promises. The law has nothing to do with it. The law has no impact on it. The law is completely outside and away from or without respect to the promises of Abraham and the blessings that accrue from those promises. In short, the promises given to Abraham and Christ are the basis for the salvation of men, and the law has no impact on that whatsoever. Now, the law still has purpose, and then he will deal with that as we come back through this topic the second time. But to set the record straight up front is his most important concern. Salvation is by grace through faith alone and without respect to law. And in fact, in verse 18, as he brings his argument to close, our salvation, which includes our inheritance, comes, as we said earlier, either by works of law or by means of a promise. So we've established earlier, you cannot combine these two things at the same time. So Paul says righteousness and inheritance, the thing we receive in the kingdom, has come by means of a promise. Therefore, it cannot have come on the basis of a law that came later. Those two things are mutually exclusive. I can either give you something as a gift or you can obtain it by earning it for yourself. You cannot both earn something and it be a gift at the same time. So if I give you something and it's a gift, it stops being a gift the minute you start trying to earn it. Definitionally, they can't both be true at the same time. So if it's by a promise, meaning a gift of God, it is by promise. If it is by your earning it, it is by works. You cannot say it's both. That's what the Judaizers were trying to say. So when Paul says, if we gain our salvation and with it our inheritance by keeping the law, then we cannot say it came from a promise. So which is it going to be? Working the law or receiving a promise? The issue may be settled in our hearts, and I certainly hope it is. But Paul knew the church would need to hear more than this. Paul knew there was still more in the hearts of these people. That's why we still have two and a half chapters. Maybe you have some of the same questions that the church had in Paul's day. One of those questions is, well, if it is in fact the case that I'm saved by grace through faith alone and the law has no bearing on my salvation, well, why did he give us the law then? What was its purpose? Because until that question gets answered, it may leave, at least in the case of some people's minds, a little doubt concerning whether keeping the law is essential. It sort of begs the question, if he didn't mean us to keep it, why did he give it? And that's a valid question, but the answer comes to something other than for salvation's sake. If salvation doesn't depend on the law, why has it been given to Israel? Why is it still in the Bible? Paul's going to teach that as we move next week into ecclesiology, which is the second half of this chapter, first part of chapter 4. Heavenly Father, give us patience to understand these things. Wisdom, Father, to know how to apply them. And appreciation for why they're so important in our walk. I'm confident, Father, like you've done for me so many times, that you'll put us at a position somewhere in the future where these are the questions that need to be answered for someone else's sake. Or a teaching will come our way that will violate what we now know to be true in Scripture and our knowledge of doctrine will preserve us for better things. Give us a heart, Father, to know these things now so that we'd be ready for those moments when they come. And bring others to join us, Father, according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.